Hello and welcome to a June edition of the Evolution of Medicine podcast. I am your host, Joe Alcock. I'm happy to be joined by Kavi Brown. I think by now I might be uh, promoted to official sidekick status. You are, yeah, <laughs> hosted by Joe Alcock and Coffee Brown. Kate Rusk, when she's available. Yeah, I can't wait it's, for Kate it's, to it's the, it's the three of us. So listeners of the pod may have noticed that I've posted some recent entries, and these are recordings that we did do with Kate Rusk, uh, with her Inertia TV live stream that she does on Twitch TV. So there's a few that were recorded a few weeks ago uh, that... I've recently put on the podcast, and there's a there's actually a backlog. I have a few more that I need to post. But this one, uh, I will see if I can get it up today. We'll see if we can post this. This is this will be as close to live as we get on the Evolution Medicine podcast. And our topic today is obesity. Yeah, what up with obesity? It seems like a terrible idea, right? We don't look good in our swimsuits, and we get all saggy and baggy and diabetes. And what's evolution thinking there? Well, I don't know. There's there's this confusing and contradictory evidence that comes out. I mean, is it first off, is it is it bad? Is that is obesity bad? How much obesity are we talking about? Well, let's just let's just measure around my my, my waist has actually expanded in uh, in diameter in the last probably eighteen months. So, well, uh, <laughs> given that I know what kind of shape you're in, I can see how frustrating that might be for you. Uh, I'm still thinking about the pictures of you being hypoxic at like 14,000 feet or... Yeah, good times. Yeah, good times. That looked like a lot of fun from, you know, sitting at Mm -hmm. home watching it on the webcam. Right. I enjoyed it in that way. (laughs) (laughs) So waist circumference is associated with... Increased waist, waist circumference is associated with a variety of bad health outcomes. Things like hypertension, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of metabolic disease. So I've told my students that this is something we need to pay attention to and that it really is an actual problem, something that we should worry about. Um, and of course, waist circumference is linked with visceral fat or visceral adipose tissue, which unlike subcutaneous adipose tissue, is thought to be, quote, the bad fat, unquote. So that actually opened up a huge can of worms, but um, I'd like to lay a little groundwork. We're obviously going to bring this back around to evolution. That's the nature of the podcast. Mm-hmm. But some general thoughts about uh, obesity. First of all, there's your apples and pears, and what uh, Joe is talking about at the moment is the apple shape of obesity. The pear shape of obesity for the same percentage of body fat appears to be uh, less harmful. There's the notion of... Uh, overweight but fit, and uh, I work with uh, some people who are drastically fitter than me, who, you know, look at them and say, hey, that person looks like a poster model or something. In fact, if you look at professional athletes, they don't look like poster models. The aesthetic that we think represents optimum fitness is not actually what the fittest people in the world look like, which is kind of interesting. Um, There's brown fat and there's white fat. There's... um, the different distributions that you alluded to. Uh, so people whose ancestors come from hot parts of the world tend to store fat deeper in their body. Insulation is not what they need. My ancestors came from cold parts of the world. In fact, I probably have some Neanderthal in me. I kind of hope I do. And um, I'm 2%. we store our fat under the skin, you know, mm-hmm. so we look smoother. Uh, but that's actually the less harmful. So with that, what you see is not what you get. And 
my students were asking me this very year, well, how do we know what's an ideal body weight, right? There's some conflicting information on that. If you look at the fittest people in the world, at Olympic athletes, for example, the ESPN Sports Edition, or, or the Olympian Edition, where they show nude Olympians, shows that there's a wide range of body types that are the fittest in the world for some sport or other, and none of them look like um, what we think of as fitness models and so forth. Right. Uh, I tend to, my aesthetic tends to like the appearance of CrossFit people, None of them actually win gold medals at anything except CrossFit, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I was going to add one other thing to that. Um, well, and of course, one of the things we're going to talk about today is that some studies appear to show that being overweight is helpful when you're in the critical care unit. Others show higher uh, all-cause mortality. So we need to let go of the idea that there's just fat and fit. Oh, and one of the things I was going to say is that body composition is real big right now. That it, what matters is not so much how much you weigh, but what your body composition is. I do tend to agree that it would be better to have more muscle and less fat, but still, if you weigh 300 pounds at 6 feet tall, that's a lot of work for your heart, and it's going to wear out younger. And in fact, we see that happen. You don't see a lot of elderly football players and bodybuilders. You right. see some, actually, but not a lot. True. And there may be some trade-offs there with, that, with uh, athletic performance, possibly, and maintenance functions and repair and uh, longevity. So that would be something that would be worth exploring. But to your point about body composition, I think that you're right. The, the, the proximate reason for us to get into this conversation today is that a listener and reader of the blog and a uh, guy who has done some remarkable work himself by the name of Fred Madsen sent us a link about this obesity paradox or supposed obesity paradox. And the, the, the link that he sent came, it came from a obesity conference, the European Congress on Obesity in Vienna, Austria, that was held recently, but the much of the work that was presented at this conference was not peer-reviewed, uh, but much of the, you know, what essentially the, there's a couple interesting pieces of work here. One focused on muscle wasting. So it's not, when you're in the hospital, a lot of times you, you undergo this muscle wasting process and you lose muscle mass. Much faster than just from being sedentary. Right. Like a person who works out and has a lot of muscle mass and then say goes to an office job and can't hit the gym for a few months, they would not lose fast, uh, lose muscle as rapidly as that same person if they're tied up in the ICU. Right. And having, say, a higher baseline of muscle mass seems to be associated with better outcomes in hospital and possibly with longevity. And we think of, you know, losing less muscle is a good outcome in and of itself when you're hospitalized. So becoming less sarcopenic. So when is, we look at, thing. within limits, heavier people doing better in the ICU, are we differentiating between whether they're heavier because they have... Does body composition matter? I think it does. Ish. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. certainly, I think if we were to kind of broadly generalize about the, the literature that's now looking at body composition... When you are in the hospital with a, with an acute illness, it seems like 
Now, having a higher baseline of having having more muscle mass is a protective thing, and losing less of it when you're hospitalized is a is a is a good thing. But having more fat under certain circumstances also seems to be good, and having more fat, even visceral fat, in one study, protected against the muscle loss that occurred in in hospital. One thing that is almost undoubtedly bad for you is to be very skinny and have little muscle mass when you go into the hospital. That, that's bad. And, but ha having some fat seems to be protective. So this is the, this is the so-called obesity paradox. And again, it's paradoxical, perhaps because we were trained and led to believe that having excess uh, body weight, most of which in, in most certainly North Americans and, and globally really, that heavy people, by and large, the excess excess weight tends to be made up by adipose tissue or fat. We're led to think that this is harmful, that it shortens lifespan, that it decreases quality of life, that it increases the risk of diabetes and all the things that go along with that. And, and now, now that there is this whole literature that we'll call the obesity paradox that seems to be questioning at least part of this. So, um, interestingly, if when I've looked at in the past at insurance actuarial tables, mm -hmm. which presumably are based on statistical outcome data, how long do people live, and what weights are correlated with what uh, lifespans, mm -hmm. they tend to be on the very thin side, the lean side, BMIs that are around uh, for men, I would say, as I'm remembering, 20 or 21, and for women, 18 or even less. Well, no, actually, for women, a little higher than you'd guess. So for men, a little lower than you'd guess, and women, a little higher than you'd guess. Um, so we're talking about ICU survival, but most of us, at least until recent history, are never going to spend a chunk of time in the ICU. That's changing. In our generation, that, that might not be true anymore. But most people, historically, never spent any time in the ICU. So when you look at all-cause survival versus ICU survival, um, the insurance actuarial tables suggest that lower weights are better than higher weights. But if you wind up in this particular category, then the higher weight would have been better. But, you know, most of us aren't in that category. So if it's bad to be very thin, is that just because being sick makes you thin? In other words, when we're trying to find out the root cause, and we can be misled sometimes by associations. When we say that being thin or having being underweight is, in, is associated with increased mortality, is that a reverse causation problem because sickness makes you lose weight? That's how I've always understood it, and the notion is you want a little bit of a margin so that you can lose some weight and still not be too far underweight. Right. Um, for example, we know that, actually, I bet your pulse is really low, right? In fact, we may have talked about this before, I can't recall, but um, we know that it's high endurance athletes... Per minute. Um, have lower pulses and lower blood pressure, mm -hmm. but they still faint at about the same level of bradycardia or hypotension as other people do. They live closer to their bottom margin. It doesn't right. lower the bottom for them. Yeah, you've mentioned that before. Yeah. That they're, they're closer to their their reserve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So go and draw some blood at your next triathlon, and you'll see more people keel over than in an average clinic. Sure. So I think, but you're right. So there is actuarial data, and this is this has been known for some time. I think it may also date back to the 1950s when people looked at the association of body weight and mortality, and it is a J-shaped curve. 
So the if the closer you are to median, probably the better you are, right? So if you're if you're an extreme of underweight or overweight, your mortality tends to go up. Uh, but the emphasis I think recently really has been that we've been concerned as physicians and, and certainly as a population uh, in this question of obesity. And obesity is something that we, we notice more now because it's more prevalent. When I was in college in the 1990s in California, fewer than one in 10 people were categorized with a BMI of over 30, so they were obese. So it was unusual to see a really fat person. Now it is approaching 40%. That's a big change in a short amount of time. And we think of this as being an unhealthy change. But is it? Now, one way that I would think of it is that there's a different um, bell-shaped curve for optimal lifespan for healthy people than there is for people in the ICU, that we should think of them as two different populations. And for one group, that curve has moved upward a bit. Yeah. What about calorie restriction? Have you heard about that? Yeah, in fact, a number of articles have come out over the last couple of years from smallish studies right. suggesting that there are some significant metabolic benefits to intermittent fasting, which, by the way, I used to do a lot of. I quit because of my understanding of the ketosis and so forth. I wouldn't bother me at all to go back to intermittent fasting. I actually rather liked it. Okay. Well, that that makes sense, but maybe for for listeners that haven't aren't familiar with this topic, there's a calorie restriction society and there are a number of people that actually try to reduce their, you know, the caloric intake uh, by about 20% less than what is recommended for the average daily needs of a human being on this planet. I and, misunderstood where you were yeah, going, but I got something interesting the, to tack on that. And the calorie restriction yeah. idea is that really by, by kind of forcing yourself to be near starvation, that you live longer. And this, these data, um, they come from mouse studies and mice that undergo, in the laboratory, that undergo this caloric restriction, they lived longer than other mice. More than mice, other species have been tested and there's some, uh, for obvious reasons, limited human data. However, it does seem that of the strategies for prolonging your life, uh, about a 30% calorie reduction and living your entire life at 60 degrees or less uh, does seem to be associated with living longer. At least it would feel like you live forever. Mm -hmm. You'd be eager for death by the time it came. Yeah, right. What's interesting is this actually slows aging, literally slows aging in the as we measure it by cell markers and things like that. And the mice that are the mice look younger and seem younger than they actually are. Right. But here's the catch. Although it actually greatly delays death due to age-related causes, the all-cause mortality is about the same. And that's because the mice are, apparently, I think, it's because the mice are not robust. So when they get a virus or a flu or something like that, they get sicker and die easier. Well, I think that's, that, that is the clue, it seems to me, is that, yeah, if you're kept in the laboratory, maybe you're protected from pathogens then perhaps you're going to live longer if you're calorie restricted. But interestingly, when they, um, when they repeated this study with primates, and I think they used a macaque model, it turned out that the primates did not live longer under calorie restriction. Now, I wasn't aware of the macaque study. So this was, a, it was a, a big study, so that kind of took the wind out of the sails of some of the human researchers or people that were interested in, in mammals that are closer to us. As a, as a good proxy to study caloric restriction in humans. So it might not work, and it probably doesn't. And your 
point that it makes the animals less robust when it comes to a viral or other infection, I think is the clue. That could be the key. That really, perhaps having a layer of fat, either around your gut with visceral adiposity or under your skin when it comes to subcutaneous fat, that these things may have a protective role when it comes to infection. So to be clear, since we're discussing a pro and con of this uh, body of studies, in I don't think there's anybody, uh, any serious scientist who would say this is ready for prime time. There are, there is a, a, a cohort of people out there who are doing this to themselves in the hope of living longer, and you can easily look them up online, but there's no scientific study I'm aware of that's advocating for that. So I not would not want us to be heard as advocating this for our listeners. No, it's an interesting yeah. thing. I did, we did... I did encounter a young man who was doing this caloric restriction regime, and I will tell you that we this is when we were out uh, exploring in northern New Mexico, and we we took him and some others up to high altitude at twelve thousand feet, and he did not tolerate that altitude stress or the cold stress at all. In fact, he left, and there was a <laughs> there was a, a, a and he left without letting us know that he was leaving. And that created uh, some some stress, but it point, it, the point being that you know, having being caloric re, calorically restricted has some major trade-offs. Tem- being able to cope with stress, being able to cope with temperature extremes, and certainly being able to cope with infection, these are things that might be some serious downsides of the calorie restriction. So, at one extreme, starving yourself so that you can live longer, if it worked at all. Mm-hmm. might be too high of a price to pay because you'd be miserable, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Read Catch-22, one of the guy's strategies there is to be miserable so he'll feel like he's living longer, mm-hmm. right? But at the other extreme, what do we say to people who say, well, this chocolate cake is now, and losing, you know, a third of my body weight is going to be two or three years away if I maintain a good diet and exercise regimen. So why would I make myself suffer for a long-term distant goal that statistically I'm not likely to reach? I would say go for the cake. Would you really? I wouldn't actually, but that's... <laughs> All right. Okay. Where, where I would go with that is that's the wrong goal to set. <laughs> My goal, when people ask me for uh, programs, is aim for 2% weight loss per week. 2% weight loss per week is quite achievable, but and then you can win every advisable? single week. I guess that really is what we're getting down to. We weight will, loss we in the 2% know, what is range the, what is the best should be advice. fat loss. So the reason you don't want more than a certain amount, now we can debate whether somewhere between 1% and 2% is probably the sweet spot. Yeah. We can debate at what level you start to lose lean mass, and there's two answers to that. Well, there's a number of answers. One is don't lose weight faster than recommended. That's a bad idea. Two, you want to be on a high-protein calorie-restricted diet. And three, you must maintain an exercise program if you're going to lose weight. Otherwise, the problem is you lose lean mass along with fat. So I would not recommend... I, the people listening to us know a lot about medicine, so I, I don't think this is an, a, you know, a less well-informed audience. But I would say that people who aren't sure what they're doing ought to get the advice of someone who understands these matters, ought to be under the supervision of an experienced trainer or nutritionist if they're going to try to lose a significant amount of weight. The point that I was trying to make, though, is the goal of hitting a certain mark per week is a goal you can win at consistently and in the near future, whereas the goal of hitting a certain final weight is too far away to ever outweigh the chocolate cake. And the idea, though, that 
weight loss in and of itself is a goal that we should be pursuing, I think should be questioned in light of some of this, these new data. Does it matter where we start from? The data that show that uh, heavier may be better in some situations yeah, doesn't recommend weighing 400 pounds. That's true. We're talking BMIs of like 26 or 28. We're not mm -hmm. talking BMIs of 40 or 45. So I want to I want to quote. This is a recent paper, and it is titled "The Obesity Paradox: A Misleading Term That Should Be Abandoned." And the author is Catherine Flegel, and the second author is John Ioannidis. And we've talked about him. He's a great physician public health professional, statistician, who uh, is at Stanford. So they argue that perhaps instead of using the, the term obesity paradox, we should be studying the normal weight paradox to find out why normal weight is not associated with better survival. As, as one thing, and they have, they have some other, there's some other, I guess I, I raise this because one, I wanna kind of review the evidence for the obesity paradox, and two, I want to point out that some people deny that it exists. So again, um, I think these we are these are some these are some folks. There are others that simply think that what we observe in terms of the obesity paradox is purely uh, confounding and bias and, and a specific kind of selection bias that occurs in studies. Um, and I don't think we have time necessarily to get into all of those details. But the this obesity paradox. It first appeared in 2002, and it was among patients who had coronary artery disease. This is work by Gruberg. Uh, the researchers predicted worse outcomes in the patients who were uh, overweight and obese, but they found that patients with normal BMI were the ones who actually did worse. And then since then, there have been a variety of, uh, actually an increasing accumulation of papers that showed that patients that have renal failure that are on dialysis, the people who are on dialysis that have that are overweight and or obese actually do better than ones who are quote unquote normal weight, um, and it, and it goes on and on. There are uh, studies of patients undergoing major um, abdominal surgery, and those patients who are overweight obese seem to do better than normal weight. Uh, there's a, another study looking at uh, orthopedic surgery, hip replacement, in which you'd expect that being, matter of fact, they tell people that are undergoing hip replacements to lose weight prior to surgery. Uh, but in, in that study, the, the ones who were, the patients who were fatter actually did better with regard to um, mortality. So this is, it's, this, again, this is, we call it a paradox because these are surprising and uh, kind of unexpected results. Well, I would differentiate between normal weight and ideal weight. Normal weight, for example, has changed drastically in a single generation, but ideal weight probably has not. Also, ideal for what? Um, for example, I would consider uh, optimal health to be the one at which your brain lasts the longest. It, to me, I think the most important thing is that you not spend a long time as a demented elderly person. Uh, other people want total longevity. Others might prioritize athletic performance, which vary greatly with different sports. So when we say ideal weight, for what? If I knew I was going to be in the ICU next year, I might gain some weight. But if I were pretty confident I wouldn't be in the ICU next year, I'd try to keep my, try to keep my weight low because it appears that uh, brain health benefits from lower body weights. So 
And again, no, I, I think, I think don't make the mistake right. of thinking if something's good, more is better. Too yeah. low of a body weight or too high of a body weight are clearly bad. We're talking about a bandwidth when, within which we're de debating what might be the ideal body weight. We're not talking about underweight and drastically overweight. Those are not the people that we're confused about. Yeah, but to your point that when we have to decide, well, what is what is the outcome that we're most interested in? Mm -hmm. Certainly it's not just purely longevity, mm -hmm. because you're right, if you spend 30 years of a long life in a nursing home in a demented state, um, I don't think most of us would think that that's a, a good outcome. Uh, but for purposes of research, and certainly when people are assessing, well, what's going to happen when I go in for this operation or when I'm hospitalized, survival versus death is something that we pay a lot of attention mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. So it's hard not to be interested in some of these these. Uh, but we forget studies. that's not a normal context. We live in that world, so for us it's normal. For most people, that's an extraordinary situation. Well, that's true. And there are some problems <coughs> with this, too. So in, in light of this, and you mentioned if you're in the ICU, so if you're critically ill or if you have sepsis, a life-threatening, you know, overwhelming infection, then there's this idea that the obesity paradox plays a role here, too. And so this is a uh, recent paper in BMC Anesthesiology entitled The Obesity Conundrum and Sepsis by Pauline Eng, which is N-G, and Matthias Eicherman. Uh, so they'd have a nice little review of this obesity paradox and looking at a variety of meta-analyses. Uh, there's been a bunch of these that suggest that uh, overweight patients do better during sepsis. In some studies, obese patients do better than normal weight patients in sepsis. Uh, one of the biggest studies was done by Wang. Uh, this is a systematic review of meta-analysis in the same journal, published in 2017, that showed that yeah, having a little extra fat, but maybe not being massively, more morbidly obese, was associated with better outcomes and sepsis. Well, and that's my point, that the curve is shifted rightward for this group, but it's still a curve mm -hmm. with a sweet spot. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we do need to point out this, because some, some people say this is all because of biases. So not adjusting for confounding factors. Um, having a selection bias where in obese populations, maybe you, you're selecting for some reason patients with less severe sepsis or other diseases. Um, and there the most interesting thing that I came came across was, I think it was called collider bias. Have you ever heard of that? I, you know, I've heard the term, but I can't remember what it means. Teach me. Oh uh, well, you know, I just I just learned about this today. Um, I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. All right. But it was in light of this obesity paradox. I do recall hearing and that term. Just to summarize, the collider bias. Here's one, the collider bias explained. So it's it's kind of it's a source of selection bias, common in epidemiologic research. It has to do with something called collider stratification. So truth be told, I don't totally understand this, but it is it is, it is a matter of selecting the wrong patients in your analysis. And the collider bias essentially makes the direction of causality go the opposite direction. Well, you're showing me something. Here. That doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, one of the ways I would look at uh, a surprising result, like the obesity paradox, is to remember that all of these things are very multifactorial. Um, in fact, you generally take a more analytic and I take a more synthetic approach to a lot of these studies. Okay. Uh, I tend to sort of stand back and look at 
and total global outcomes and things yeah. like that, and you're right down into the the biochemical pathways and so right. forth. So let's let just to kind of circle back on that. I, I loved one of your early podcasts where you described the difference between analysis and synthesis. Uh-huh. It comes from the Greek root. So to analyze is to take apart, mm-hmm. and to synthesize is to put together. Yeah, science is sometimes accused of being reductionist about right. things. Well, that's not actually true, but um, what people mean by reductionist is the analytical approach where you look at all the little bits and parts. Um, the idea that when you discover a new species, this is what the first thing they told me in my first biology class, when you meet a new species, drop it in a wearing blender, right? right. Uh, so that would be the so-called reductionist approach. It's the analytical approach. And in your writings, you're way deeper into the uh, nuts and bolts of how a lot of this stuff works than I am. But at some points, you also have to stand back and look at outcomes and big picture stuff. And clearly, well, not clearly, I'll, I'll take that back. We have assumed that we knew clearly that obesity overall has a negative impact on health and quality of life and longevity. The people who are talking now about the obesity paradox are reopening that question. Although I wouldn't say I'm yet persuaded that it's not harmful to be obese. And I'm not, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle too. Yeah. I don't know totally what to make of all these data. And we have talked, so with you and I think with Kate Rusk, we mentioned the Tohono O'odham example. These are the Pima Indians that lived in, that they continue to live in, to, in Mexico and Arizona. And a series of studies showed that the Arizona Pima had horrific rates, in fact, the highest in the world, of diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, complications of, of diabetes and cardiovascular disease, all associated with kind of massive weight gain. And the Tohono O'odham living in Mexico, who at least historically ate a more traditional diet of squash, dryland farm, farmed beans, and uh, fruits and vegetables, they had very little obesity and essentially were completely spared these diabetic complications. So that's the frame that, that I think is a compelling one. And it's something which is relevant to patients that we see here in New Mexico because they're very similar to the Tohono O'odham in terms of many of them in terms of these risk factors. And the ones who come in that have that massive belly, they're in trouble. And so it's a problem. But these recent data, the obesity paradox, if it is a real thing, I think it's real, it points in another direction. And it says, well, you know what? Maybe obesity isn't all bad. So yeah, if you're sick and you are undergoing surgery or you have a bloodstream infection or you, for whatever reason, have some other life-threatening challenge, cancer, for instance, it might be better to be overweight or obese. This is, this is interesting. This challenges our assumptions. I'm not 100% sure what to make of it. So there are some ways that obesity seems to work for us mm-hmm. and some ways that, well, I'll, I won't say obesity. I'll say it differently. There are some ways in which um, having enough fat works for us and some ways in which having more than enough fat works against us. And the balance between those things is situational. It's going to depend on who we are, what's happening to us at a given time, what environment we're in, and what we consider, what outcome we're looking at. But that fat is having both positive and negative effects, and that we get a little confused by this, I I would say is my understanding of it at the moment. Yeah. 
So one way that I do try to put all this together and something that I've written about in the, in the blog has to do with thinking about what is the function of fat? Is fat just a passive storage device for excess calories so that when you go to Blake's Burger and you are in New Mexico and you get a double, double, double meat, uh, extra you know, ketchup, extra green chili cheeseburger, that where do those calories go? Well, you have these fat cells that are ready to take up that excess energy, store it in case of a time of need. So traditionally, we've thought about fat as being something useful for taking care of extra energy and allowing us to survive famine and starvation. Makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 it indeed does this. And that is largely the model that's been in my mind most of my working life. Yeah. So recently, there was a paper published in the journal Science that looked at pre-adipocytes in subcutaneous tissue, so under the skin. And this work showed that fat cells, if in the event of wounding or infection, fat cells were absolutely critical to combat and fight that infection. That the immature fat cells behaved very much like macrophages or innate immune cells. They actually gobble up bacteria, they phagocytose them, they destroy them, and they recruit other immune cells to the site of infection. So do they, for example, save and then share along the antigens like macrophages will do? I can't say I am up on the literature enough to tell you that. It's all right. You're already yeah. way ahead of me. This yeah. is very new information. So for me. this was a, this is a, these are, these were dermatologists that did yeah. this study. And it was, uh, I believe it was Gallo's group out of UC San Diego. Uh, but they did show that, you know, having a layer of subcutaneous fat, I'm, for podcast listeners, I'm, I'm grabbing my fat right now. I'm like, I can feel it. <laughs> so having that fat, the, the stuff you can grab may actually be useful if you have a skin infection or if you have a, a, a wound. Uh, there's a, I, I heard a talk by the researcher Gallo where he described how marine mammals that are struck by propellers, they have a, they'll actually have a proliferation of blubber in the area of, of injury, suggesting that having, a, having more fat um, at the site of wounding is something which is, is useful. So I'd be careful, though, about saying more fat. I would say enough fat. And here's where I'm going with no, that. But the, uh, bariatric patients have high infection rates, and yeah. surgeons don't like operating on them. It's hard to sew that tissue together, and it's poorly vascularized and tons and tons of calories there. So bacteria love to infect fatty tissue. This is why it's confusing. This is why it's confusing. So having a tremendous amount of fat, you're right, is definitely bad, and surgeons seem to not like it. <laughs> I don't blame <laughs> Right? <laughs> Although I, this, this orthopedic surgery thing was surprising to me, uh, the paper that I just referenced. Well, let's go back to that for a second. So yeah. the orthopedic guy is thinking, I want to unload this engineering, this woodworking project I've just you know, built, right? I yeah. wanted to have time to heal before you put weight on it. And uh, in fact, my dog had to have both of her knees operated over mm-hmm. the last few years. And I have kept her weight on the low side to help her recover. Mm-hmm. She has recovered well, thanks for asking. But um, Good. You know, did I help her or not, right? At the same time, for metabolic reasons, maybe a little more weight would have been helpful. But that that newly repaired hip and the muscles and ligaments around it might not deal with uh, more weight very well. So there's a sweet spot in there somewhere between these two opposing, there's a good reason to lose weight and a good reason to gain weight. It's, 
Yeah, so maybe, but over maybe focusing exclusively on one of those reasons to the to the exclusion of others mm -hmm. might be bad. Mm -hmm. So if we think simply of the mechanical forces on a joint, and orthopedists are good at looking at that, then yeah, they're going to see fat as being a bad thing uniformly. Given that they right? try to get everybody to lose weight who gets this kind of hip surgery, and most people do not, yep. we ought to be able to retrospectively build a curve and see how much weight loss turns out to be optimal, or what kinds of percent body fats do the best after surgery, or something of that sort. And that kind of study would be at risk of having a variety of you know, selection bias problems. Yeah, it would give you a starting yeah. point. It would give you, you, you always want to do a prospective study at some point, but that yeah. would give you a, an opening bid, I think. Oh, that's a good point. Um, when we get into, away from the joints and the subcutaneous tissue, when we get back into the, the gut, mm -hmm. I was surprised to read that one of these abstracts that Fred Madsen brought to our attention, it made the point that having more visceral fat, the bad fat, may decrease the muscle loss that happens during during sepsis. So visceral fat might might actually be potentially a decrease good the thing. muscle loss. Yeah, so you because you have a more readily available You maintain the muscle when you have more fat. Mm -hmm. That yeah, makes I mean it makes sense, right? Yeah. But there are a couple other examples that I'd like to think about that also highlight the potential defensive role of, of visceral fat. So first, there was a study done mid-century, talking last century, where they took dogs and they gave them an omentectomy. So they took out virtually all the visceral fat in these dogs. And then uh, it turned out that post-omentectomy, the animals were much less able to deal with uh, sepsis or infection. They had much higher mortality in this animal model. So that makes you think, well, gosh, maybe the omentum, which is just this drape when uh, surgeons open up the belly and they do an operation, the first thing they see is this drapery of fat, which overlies all the intestinal organs, and that's called the omentum. In obese people, that fat becomes much larger, it becomes hypertrophied. And we think of this as, again, we've, we've been trained to think of this as bad. Uh, but what surgeons have noticed on a couple of occasions is that um, if you have a condition that makes that gives you a bowel perforation, so your gut leaks, bacteria spill into the peritoneum, causes peritonitis, sometimes sepsis, and then death, that in people that survive a perforation, when surgeons go in, a lot of times that area of the intestine will be wrapped by fat, but the fat actually produces a uh, a barrier has a barrier function, <clears throat> and two kinds of surgeons have noticed this. So one is the are the surgeons that work on patients with Crohn's disease. Crohn's is an uh, inflammatory uh, colitis in which there is a full thickness inflammation, and there's a micro perforation that that can become macro sometimes, and bacteria and stool can leak out of the out of the intestine. Uh, but surgeons notice something called creeping fat. And the creeping fat was that the omentum basically becomes an adherent and sticks to the areas of inflamed bowel. So that well, inflamed tissues yeah. in general tend to stick to each other. That, that is true. Uh, but because they fibrose. The, the idea that this, this phenomenon of creeping fat um, has, was suggested by people other than me that the fat actually provides a barrier. Uh, and the other thing is that uh, patients who are undergoing acute append appendicitis to get away from the chronic disease and you look at an acute condition, um, how to, what do you teach your paramedics the typical, say, 
condition of a um, or position that a patient with appendicitis is going to be in? Um, slightly flexed. I basically yeah. show them what we call the PID walk. It it <laughs> looks very much like that. So it's pelvic and inflammatory disease. Yeah, so kind of hunched over. Your right leg will the, be drawn the, up a bit. The hips are flexed. Yeah. So it turns out that by flexing the hips, what that does is it makes the momentum go down in closer proximity to the uh, appendix. Mm -hmm. And and people have some people have thought, well, gosh, maybe the maybe the omentum actually has a muscular, it has this remarkable ability to actually get to the inflamed bowel and wrap around it. <laughs> and people thought, well, maybe it has its own nervous system, and there certainly are nerves, and maybe it has muscles, but there are no muscles. So there's no way for this to happen. The only way it can happen is by the patient moving around, okay? And appendicitis patients and other sick patients with perforation, one, they don't want to be moved, and they will oftentimes have their hips flexed. That flexion of the hips allows the omentum to get in the right place. So visceral fat has a function. It has a function somewhat like what we see with the, the dermal fat. It has a, it has a function when there is an, when there's a likelihood of invasive microbes spilling out of the gut in the case of the bowel or entering through the skin in the case of a dermal wound. Now, having rummaged around in there myself from time to time, the, I can clearly in visualize the, in the, intestine. the way the uh, omentum mm -hmm. can act as a sealant for these kinds of injuries. Yeah. And if it has, as you said, some um, macrophage, some immunological component, that makes mm -hmm. total sense to me. Yeah. So it's not a tough so sell like, for me like, that if you like lose the, your omentum, it's a problem. I like the problem. idea. It's like that tire sealant that you, uh, you spray yeah, into. Yeah, it's uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I can see that clearly. And, and those of your listeners who are, who are medical people probably aren't having any trouble visualizing this. For some of the others, it might be trickier. But here's the thing. It's not a tough sell for me that losing your momentum is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it follows that more is better. Uh, and that's but, kind of the discussion. But I guess the only thing that I want to say here is that if you think of fat as in the way that most physicians think of fat, that fat is a repository of excess energy. And that, too, that excess energy is bad and that having excess adipose tissue is associated with a, a unhealthy metabolism like diabetes and infl low-grade inflammation. I've, I've made this very same argument myself. Then you're going to miss this other underappreciated function of fat. That fat, mm -hmm. the, that adipocytes, the little cells that make up fat, they have evolved to participate in the in immune response they have a function which involves blocking the uh, egress of bacteria from the gut or the ingress of bacteria from the skin into your body. And this is an evolved function of fat. We don't teach medical students this, yet it is there, it's in the literature. And I think the only way that we can understand something like an obesity paradox is to appreciate the likelihood that fat does something besides its energetic and inflammatory role, that it actually has a beneficial role under certain circumstances. And, and, some, and two of those things are uh, these life-threatening bowel perforations um, and possibly uh, other invasive infections. Do you know, and I don't, whether the obesity paradox is more manifest in medical or surgical ICU patients or whether it's about the same? I don't know. I think that there are examples of both. Okay. Yeah. So what advice ought we to give our patients about ideal body weight? I'm just going to be a little bit agnostic. I, you know, I'll tell you one thing. We've, we've mentioned this before. Exercise is magic, mm -hmm. right? It mm -hmm. has disproportionate benefits to 
mental health to physical health to longevity and it's, just, it's a good thing. I've been to obesity conferences in which uh, the speakers have advised that we shouldn't be really counseling our patients at all about body weight. We should be increased, we should be telling them to focus on their metabolic health and, and part of doing that is to exercise. Yeah, I'd agree with that actually, uh, especially at the current state of the art. I think almost anything we can do that gets people to exercise regularly is going to be 90% of the effectiveness we can get with regard to body composition. Yeah. Everything else will sort of follow and flow from that. Advising people how to eat better, uh, how to eat more wisely, I mean to say. And by the way, it has come to be my... Nutrition's a murky area, by the way, and I am not the expert in it, but my current state of understanding suggests that uh, over the course of our lifetime, we should gradually be decreasing our calories per kilo per day and gradually increasing the proportion in de of protein and decreasing the proportion of simple carbohydrates throughout the course of our lifetime. That that's the general trend, I think, of nutritional profile that's age appropriate. So I, I, but don't you think that it's hard for most people to, you know, say decrease their caloric intake by two percent per year or something like that? Well, that's, that's going to be it's going to be very hard. Most people aren't one that cognizant of what they're taking in, and most people, I think myself included, lack that degree of self control. Well, that's actually the reason why I like you going to the exercise side. I think yeah. the exercise side, contrary to popular opinion, is probably the easier one to tackle. A lot of the people who study obesity seem to be throwing in the towel. I've read a number of papers over the last few years that suggest that this is not a winnable fight. Addiction in general, they seem to be throwing in the towel on. We just we don't know how to fix addiction. And I see uh, obesity as a kind of food addiction. And, and functional MRI neural studies suggest that that's a good model for it. Although, but um, I'm not ready a, to a, say... As a tiny counterpoint. But, but let me finish this thought because I don't want to finish on that one. Yeah. I do not believe that addiction is incurable and I do not believe that we cannot win against obesity, that is reverse obesity once it's established. But I do agree that we presently don't seem to have a good handle on how to go at it. Okay. Go ahead and take it where you wanted to. Well, I just fear we're going to like go on forever. Oh, because, uh, we there's can so stop many, whenever you no, want there's so many to, interesting things to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I have there's three things I want to say. <laughs> go for it. In response to I didn't want to talk said. across your point, but I just so, didn't want to end on a give up note because no, 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 it's no. not how I feel about it. I don't. I don't think so either. Yeah. I think that I think that we should we should aim to have our patients and ourselves certainly not be morbidly obese, and in general that we sh that obesity is something <laughs> which we should. Uh, try to avoid uh, from a public health perspective. I, this is what I think, but I would I would caution that being overweight maybe is not so bad, and being overweight so short of obesity. So these are patients with a uh, BMI, body mass index between 25 and 30, that that may actually be healthy. Um, so in thinking about as we get older, a paper that I read today suggested that the ideal body weight for longevity is actually a little bit heavier as you get older. So you shouldn't, if people that maintain the same body weight throughout their entire lives, um, on average, those patients may actually do a little worse than patients that gain a little bit of weight uh, as we age, which is the typical thing that happens to most of us. So I want to make that point. Um, another point I wanted to make was uh, with regard to exercise, there's some very interesting studies that have been done that show that, especially for women, 
exercise does not result in weight loss. Exercise can result. In Nobody can result in altered body composition and altered metabolism. It actually results in weight gain, and it, but also fat mass gain, uh, in part because it stimulates appetite. So of course this is the wrong. We don't want to tell people, oh, you shouldn't exercise because you might gain weight. But we can't also give them the false impression that simply by exercising one's going to lose weight. So that's that's an interesting thing. There's my point wasn't that they'd lose weight, but that they'd improve their overall health and body composition. Uh, and I completely agree. It's just something which I thought was very interesting yeah, when I heard yeah. that. Because it really it gets to, well, what do we tell patients who want to lose weight? We know that, in fact, dieting doesn't work. It doesn't. And I can say this 100%. Mm-hmm. While many diets work in the short term, none work in the long term. And, in fact, because of that, it's worse to diet than not at all. What you have to do is change your habits and your relationship, your thoughts about food. If you can't do that, you're not going to win. So dieting doesn't work. And, and here we're saying, well, exercise doesn't work to lose weight because at least in some studies, women in particular seem to gain weight and they gain fat mass. Well, uh, I, I want to yeah. give a counterpoint to that before I... Yeah, I, I wouldn't stop on that note, yeah. Well, there's a, there was a, one study that, that suggested the opposite looked at women post-pregnancy were trying to lose weight. Mm-hmm. Exercise is very, very good at losing you know, excess pounds that are associated with pregnancy. But in general, it doesn't seem to work for that. So we are left with uh, this, this conundrum that physicians, you know, I, I think that we physicians need to be very, very careful and not uh, berate our patients and tell them, hey, you just need to diet and exercise, and your obesity is simply a manifestation of your lack of self-control. Especially since yeah. we have about the same body composition as the average of the population. We, well, we do, but even if we don't, <laughs> no. uh, so not only so does, that de- does that degree of, uh, okay, say, counsel, not only is it potentially harmful to patients, uh, but it's wrong. It doesn't, it's, it's actually bad advice. So then the question is, what do we do? One answer may be uh, a gut microbiota-based um, uh, intervention. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's, I, we can't have one of these kinds of conversations without bringing the gut microbiota into it. No, in fact, I was sort of waiting for us to get there. Yeah, <laughs> right. take, it, take it down that path for a second. Well, we've, we've touched on this before. There may, be, uh, there may be some microbe or diet plus microbiota uh, interventions that might be helpful. Unfortunately, we, if this is a... You know, answer to the to the quote-unquote problem of obesity, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but there are some interesting hints along those lines. So I'm sending you a pamphlet that I made up for because people keep asking for this kind of thing. Oh, great! And uh, I will be interested if you have any um, comments or critiques. I'm always trying to improve it. Sure. So given that we're on this topic, yeah. Blah blah blah. All right. So exercise does a bunch of stuff. It raises your metabolism. It does increase your appetite. So if you exercise, but you don't mind the in, you don't watch the increase in your appetite, yeah, you're going to gain fat. That's absolutely true. Um, however, if you can stay within your normal eating habits and you exercise, you should improve your body composition. I wouldn't stop there. I think it's crucial for a number of reasons that people do change their eating habits. But you need to change those habits gradually, and you always need to replace a bad habit with a better habit. I didn't say best, I said better. That's really important. So gradual, slow changes in diet and exercise, I think, can make a big difference. 
And if you had to choose one or the other, I would pick exercise as the more important and as the starting point. Yeah, I, I'm not going to disagree with the words of wisdom of Coffee Brown. Those are, those are that's excellent advice. Um, and I, you know, this is, it's not news for physicians to say, "Hey, you got to pay attention to diet and exercise." I just think we have to be a bit cautious about what we're telling patients. And calorie counting doesn't work. That that for sure is something that simply doesn't, concur. Doesn't calorie work. counting, uh, I don't, I don't advocate it. Uh, I came up from a generation where fat was the enemy, and yeah. it drove people toward carbohydrates and is now thought to have been mm. part of Dietary what led fat. us into the, epi- uh, the obesity epidemic that right. we're talking about today. Um, carbohydrates, we underestimated the importance for a long time. It was known but not widely talked about, and I didn't have a good, strong sense of it. We underestimated the importance of carbohydrates in uh, things like triglyceride and cholesterol uh, formation and so on. And by the way, I would div- I would say four groups. So instead of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, I'd say protein, fat, simple carbohydrates, and complex carbohydrates. I would divide those. And the complex carbohydrates are the part that has some fiber in it. And fiber is food for the microbes. Yeah, and the more body. your food, the less processed your food is, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. the more it's going to be a complex high-fiber carbohydrate, which has tons of health benefits. Even as murky and controversial as nutrition is, that seems like stuff pretty much everybody would stand next to. I stand next to that. Yeah. Well, that might be a good note on which to end at least this part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Coffee, do you want to talk about uh, your idea for an upcoming podcast that had to do with uh, Oh, great. Well, if we're going to give people brain. a sneak preview, then a spoiler uh-huh. alert, Yeah. then uh, send in some questions and ideas and maybe even some material you think would be helpful for us to look at. Yeah. So next time around, we're going to talk about how depression fits in with the idea of a well-oiled evolutionary machine, why it is that um, hallucinogenic, or I should say psychotropic drugs, I'll go broader than that, MRIs are uh, involved here as well, can have disproportionate effects on reversing depression, and why it is that there's something in us that wants to alter our consciousness. Why do we want to drink? For example, I never, ever think to myself, I'd like to be even stupider than I am. That's just never a thought Slower. that I have. And yet, With for wor- some worse reason, reflexes. Yeah, we tend to trend in that direction, right? Yeah. You know what would be great is to turn off my cerebral cortex and turn on my adrenal glands and my amygdala. Mm-hmm. So that I'll go out there and I'll be active and horny just long enough to have a kid I don't know about. And tomorrow I'll regret it all, but tonight I've got my cortex turned off. How does that make evolutionary sense? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about that the next time around. And don't you want to hear about that? <laughs> I'm sure coffee will be speaking from personal experience. <laughs> I do not that. <laughs> well, great. So, yeah, we have something to look forward to. Thanks again, listeners. On that note, enjoy your, your June, and we'll check in with you later. Thanks, Joe.